All right. My favorite passage is Revelation 7, verses 9 through 10. So you can go ahead and start turning there. It's the last book of the Bible. And we'll get started. So I'm going to Boyce College, as many of you may know. I'm majoring in global studies, which is basically majoring in cultures and globalization, trying to understand the way the world operates and different people groups all over the place because I want to get into missions. And like he said, I'm going to Peru in one week from now, and I'll be there for three weeks. And in order to get this degree, this global studies degree, I have to do many different things. I have to you know, take classes. I have to actually show up to those classes and pass them. I have to you know, pay too much money. And in order to get this degree, I have to you know, do these certain things. I have to meet these requirements because you know, that is an end goal of mine. It's one of my end goals is to get this degree to be a man with this bachelor's degree in global studies. And in order to do that, I have to meet all these different things, like I said. And the end goal determines the actions that I take now, but also how well I do them. And I'm certainly not at the top of my class right now, but if I were taking classes and I didn't know why I was taking those classes, then it would be a miracle if I graduated. You know, I have to know why I'm even in these classes. I want to be able to achieve this goal. So, you know, I'm not a counselor or a motivational speaker, but I'm pretty sure those people would tell you that you need goals if you want to accomplish anything. If you don't have any goals, then you just end up, you know, without any kind of, you know, aimless. You're aimless. So we have many different end goals in life, but... When we step outside of ourselves for just a moment, we tend to ask the question, you know, what am I here for? Or what are we here for? For the sake of the message today, what is the end goal of all this? You know, what is the purpose? What is the end goal? And we did not create this universe. We are results of something before us. And this is all began, if this all began with a big bang and there is no God, then that means there is no purpose. There is no end goal to any of this. But if there is a God, then that God created or has an end goal. He has a purpose in all of this. Because our God is not a God who moves without a purpose. And my favorite passage is one that gives us a glimpse into God's end goal or his purpose in all of this. So I want to go ahead and turn to Revelation chapter 7. I'm starting in verse 9, and I'm just reading the two verses here. It says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So John wrote um, the book of Revelation, and in this passage, he's seeing a vision of something that's going to come in the future. It's kind of, it's like a, a, a beautiful picture. It, 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 you know, catches your senses here. And Revelation as a whole is pretty hard to understand. 
If you don't know anything about the Bible and you just jump right into Revelation, you're going to be so lost. You might as well be reading, or, you know, reading a different language. And we recently went through the book of Revelation in Womble Sunday School class, and I still think I, can, I would consider myself a pan-millennialist, which means you know, all things are going to pan out in the end. And I probably stole that from one of the guys in the class too. But even though Revelation is full of things we don't understand, as Christians, we should be able to understand these two verses. And I hope you guys will be able to see why I love them so much. And I hope you guys love the Bible because we're going to be getting a lot of it tonight. So let's walk through the Old Testament, but really just a few passages that are really going to help us better understand this passage in Revelation. So keep this, uh, keep this scene in mind. You know, then I looked and behold a great multitude that standing before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed in white robes upon branches of their hands, proclaiming with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne to the Lamb. Think about that whenever we go through some of these places in the Old Testament. So it all starts in the very beginning when God created the heavens and the earth. That's Genesis 1.1. Uh, God's end goal at this moment has already been established. He already knows what he's going to do. He already knows the scene that's going to come forth in Revelation chapter 7. And he creates the heavens and the earth. He creates existence as we know it. And then we see that man is created and man falls. Genesis chapter 3. And I believe that the fall of man is still a part of God's plan. He didn't mess up when, he, when this happened. This wasn't God saying, oh, well, there goes my plan. But it's still, it was necessary for everything to come forth the way he wanted it to. But then after that, we have the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11, like right between Noah and then you get to Abraham in Genesis. The Tower of Babel is when a bunch of people, I mean, all people are together in one spot and they're united, which sounds like a good thing. But in verse four, they say, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So they're all together, they're united, but what is their purpose? What are they there and what are they united for and under? They're united for the sake of their own glory. So it sounds kind of similar to the scene we see in Revelation, but instead of God getting the glory, they're trying to get the glory. And so God disperses them. And then that forms all the different people groups that are spread out all over the world. And then in one of those people groups, we have a man named Abraham. And, he, and God makes a covenant with Abraham in Genesis chapter 13. And he says to him, I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. So that should sound kind of familiar to us from the passage we already read. God is saying to Abraham, this older man, that his offspring will be so much that no one will be able to count, count them. And then Abraham does have some offspring. His descendants become Israel. They end up in Egypt and they're in captivity. And as we know, the story of Moses going and, and talking to Pharaoh, trying to get the people free. And God sends 10 plagues on Egypt. And the 10th one is the Passover. The firstborn of every household will be put to death if, or if Pharaoh doesn't let the Israelites free. And, but God gives Israel, his people, a way out of this. He says that if you sacrifice a lamb, you slaughter it and you put its blood on your doorposts, then I will pass over, or the angel of death will pass over your household. You will be spared from God's wrath. So we see here in the Passover 
that a lamb takes the place of the firstborn of the households of Israel as a substitute for them. And then continually, sacrifice is just a part of Israel's customs. Sacrificing for the atonement of sins, which has a purpose. And then eventually comes the kings of Israel. You know, Israel grows, becomes real big. We have Saul, David, Solomon, and they all fail. But in the midst of the fall of Israel, like Josh Green's been talking about with the minor prophets and, all, and Israel falling because of their, um, their sin, there's, there comes Isaiah. Isaiah is right there in the midst of the fall of Israel. And his book, or the book that he writes, is just full of Christological gold. You know, talking about the Messiah that's to come, the Christ to come. It's just full of it from beginning to end. I suggest reading it. It's pretty good. But tonight we're going to be looking, I'm going to read over three passages. One of them we've already seen in the call to worship. And pointing out and thinking about some things that are going to be, look like what we've already seen in Revelation. So first thing, Isaiah 9, 6 through 7, says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of the peace, and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So there will come one who will have the government upon his shoulders on the throne of David. He'll be over a kingdom and the Lord of hosts, God, will put him there. It'll be because of the zeal of God. And then in Isaiah 43, five through seven, what we just read, fear not for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. So God is basically promising here that he will bring his people, his offspring, from the east, the west, the north, the south, from everywhere, all over the earth, to gather into one place for his glory. And then lastly, the suffering servant passage, Isaiah 53 which talks about the Messiah to come is going to be a servant, and he's going to suffer, suffering servant. So 53, 7, and then 10 through 11 says, He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. So the Messiah to come is going to be a suffering servant. He's going to, be, he's going to take the place of a lamb, and he's going to be crushed for the iniquities of his people, He's going to make many to be accounted righteous. So with just these few passages from the Old Testament together, we find that it puts together a scene by itself where there will one day be an innumerable amount of people from all over the world gathered together under the kingship of one that will make them righteous. And this king will do this by his own work through the shedding of blood for the glory of God. 
and we haven't got to the New Testament. This is the Old Testament talking about this, and it basically already paints you a picture of the scene in Revelation 7, 9 through 10. So, as the Old Testament concludes, we know Revelation 7, 9 through 10 will come, but who is the lamb on the throne? There's been no names or anything so far. We just see a lamb on the throne in Revelation, and we're just talking about the Messiah to come in the Old Testament. It paints this picture. But in comes the New Testament. This is, the whole, this is where the New Testament comes in and gives light to what the Jews were looking forward to in the Old Testament. John 1, 29. The next day he, John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There he is. Could you imagine John standing there and he sees Jesus, the one that the, everyone's been looking forward to seeing, the Messiah, this one that's pictured in Revelation, this him. It's all about Jesus. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So Jesus is going to be the Lamb, which means something to do with sacrifice. He's going to be sacrificial somehow. And then the triumphal entry comes in John 12, 12. We just went over this as well on Sunday morning. It says, the next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees, palm branches, and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. And just as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. So we have here people holding palm branches, crying out to the king and rejoicing. So, but if he's the king and he's a lamb, how does that go together? How is he, Jesus the king and the sacrificial lamb at the same time? But we get the answer to this in John 18 later on when he's speaking to Pilate. He says to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. This is why many of the Jews didn't believe Jesus was the Messiah because they thought that the Messiah was gonna be this king who was gonna take the throne and rule over them in a, in a worldly way. So Jesus died, or but Jesus died, so that means he couldn't be the Messiah, right? That's wrong. This is only because this is only the way, or this is the only way he could be a sacrifice and a king. God's wisdom is greater. He's the king of another world, and he would be the lamb or the, that would die on behalf of their sins in this world. Then the Roman soldiers gave him a crown of thorns, and they put a purple robe around him, and they nailed him to the cross, and they put a sign above his head that said, Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. And they really didn't understand how true that was, that he truly was the king. But yet they mocked him and put this crown of thorns on him, the robe, nailed him to a tree, and some wood. But he truly was the king. So he was sacrificed. But the lamb who died on the cross is now the lamb who stands because death, submit, or death submits to the king. Jesus resurrected and took the throne and one day he will return for a final victory and the scene in Revelation 7 will come to pass. 
So we're going to move back to the scene and look at this real quick. After this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number. So here's your descendants of Abraham that you cannot number like the sands of the seashore, the stars in the sky, all believers from all times. We are going to be there as all believers standing before the throne from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. So this is the people from all over the world, you know, west, east, south, north, everywhere, all over the planet, from every different kind of people. And, well, side note, churches here obviously look pretty white in America, and we've gotten used to it, but I think that whenever we get to heaven, we're standing here at the throne, it'll probably take us a good minute to find another white face in the crowd. There's gonna be a lot of colors, and I think it'll be surprising to a lot of us, but we'll be in a different mindset. We'll be glorified. So, continuing, and before the throne and before the Lamb is where they are. All these different people before the throne, before the Lamb. So the sacrificial king is at the center of it all. Everyone is gathered around. Everyone knows why they're there at all. Because of the sacrificial lamb that is standing at the throne alive. And like my pastor in South Carolina, you know, a lot of you know Josh Powell, he would always say that if Jesus left heaven for just a moment, then we would have to leave with him because he's the only reason we're gonna be there. And we're gonna know that. We'll know that for sure. Because of his act of sacrifice, we're made righteous and can be in heaven. So the last part of verse nine, why are they wearing white robes and holding palm branches in their hands? This is significant as well, of course. And commentary, or in a commentary by Grant Osborne, he says, these are the robes of purity, but especially of victory, resembling here a Roman triumph in which the conquering general would lead a victory procession through the streets of Rome wearing a pure white toga. In addition to the white robes, they had palm branches in their hands. Palm branches were a sign of rejoicing on a festive occasion, such as the triumphal entry of Christ, which we've seen. The contexts are similar, for the crowds then thought Jesus a conquering king, and here the imagery is also a celebration of victory. So they're wearing white robes in the context because it's a victory. Is conquering. Jesus has conquered the grave. Jesus has conquered sin and death. They're all standing in victory. And palm branches rejoicing. And then lastly, verse 10, we will all know and cry out, salvation belongs to our God. Because this God on the throne is the God who deserves all glory, honor, power, respect, love, worship, in the other passages of Revelation, like the song we just sang, worthy, worthy, worthy is the lamb who was slain. We will be worshiping all the time. And another thing Josh Powell would say is I hope you like singing because we're gonna be singing a lot in heaven. So if you don't like singing now, you might not like heaven because we're gonna be worshiping all the time. So what do we do with this? What do we do with this scene from Revelation 7? That's way ahead. Maybe not too far. Maybe tomorrow. But... The answer should be natural. We point to Jesus and say, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. 
to everyone, wherever we go. We have brothers and sisters out there right now who do not know how great our God is. And God has said that every group of people will be represented around the throne. They will be. That's a promise. It will happen. We might fail at reaching our goals, but God doesn't. And in all those different people that are around the throne, there will be people like the Ad Dharmi in India. There's 0% Christian there right now in that people group. The Imak in Afghanistan, 0% Christian. Bafinda in Pakistan, 0%. Urdu in Oman, 0%. Tandagatan in Sri Lanka, 0%. Saninki in Mali, 0%. And the Southern Sama in Philippines, all 0%. And the list goes on. There are people groups all over the world right now who have 0% Christian. And it, can this be discouraging? Or should this be discouraging? Should we be asking the question, who's going to have to go to those people? You know, it's a burden, you know. Who's going to have to go? Somebody's got to go. Some, they got to hear eventually. And they're going to be there, right? But it's the wrong question to ask. Wrong way to ask it. The real question we should be asking is, who gets to go to these people? There are people out there who are gonna reach them, and in my opinion, they're gonna be really privileged. Those people have such an honor. Could you imagine being in heaven, standing next to a people that came to know Jesus because of the sacrifice you made to reach them and tell them about the gospel? Tell them about the good news of Jesus? That would be incredible. And, you know, it's anyone. It's not just unreached people groups that are on the other side of the world. I mean, not all of us are going to get up and go to the other side of the world. But even seeing your neighbor, seeing your neighbor before the throne, because one day you pointed to Jesus and they looked and they never stopped looking. So wherever you're at, you know, you always point to Jesus and say, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world and show them how great our God is. So, have your end goals and accomplish a lot in your lives, but make sure that your end goals are always working towards the one end goal that matters. That's God's glory through the adoration of his people. That's God's end goal. This is what God had planned from the very beginning. It's why he created the heavens and the earth, to create a universe that would glorify him and adore him. If this is God's end goal, then it should be our end goal as well, right? And I've already said this, we might fail at reaching our goals, but God doesn't fail at reaching his goals. That is an end goal to try to work towards. If we all put our end, if we all make our end goals the same end goal as God's, then we will not fail. We will not see failure. So when Revelation 7, 9 through 10 comes, I'll see you guys there. And let's pray. God, thank you so much for everything you've given. Thank you, Father, for the Son 
for the sacrifice. Thank you for the empowering of the Holy Spirit that gives us life. I pray that you will help every one of us to see the greater picture, the picture outside of our own little lives and step out for a second and realize that there is an end goal, there is a purpose behind every little thing in the universe you have created us for. And not only us, the whole universe, from the sky and stars, the moon, the earth, the seas, all things will praise you and adore you. We thank you for your unfailing work and the hope and the comfort that we have knowing that if we struggle and we strive, that it will not go as a waste. It will not be wasted that if we work and we give then our sacrifice, even if it is reaching one person and showing them that you are good and that you are a lamb who was slain for our sins, then all our work will be worth it. Lord, thank you, and I pray that you will raise up laborers to go out into the harvest and reach people who will be before your throne. Singing, glory and honor and power to you. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.